We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And woman, of course. That's what he meant. But it was Lyndon Johnson. It was the mid-60s. Now, everyone knows that the Middle East is a very troubled and extremely volatile region of the world. Of course, we know there's always Israel and Palestine, There's also the military dictatorship in Egypt, endless war in Iraq, increasing violence in Turkey, riots in Lebanon lately, brutal civil war in Syria, wars in Sudan, chaos in Libya, and a big civil war, well, maybe not so much a civil war in Yemen, and of course, the terrorist-sponsoring nation of Iran. The two most stable, democratic, and pro-Western nations are Jordan and Saudi Arabia, right? Well, not so fast. True, Jordan seems to be an exception to the rule for the most part. But today, we're going to take a good look at America's good old dependable ally, Saudi Arabia. Who is the real troublemaker in the Middle East? That's the title of a current article written by our guest, Medea Benjamin, co-founder of CoPink, Women for Peace and Global Exchange. Thanks so much for being with us, Medea. Thank you so much for having me on Well, Code Pink is uh, a women-initiated grassroots peace and social justice movement working to end wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, still a long way to go. Stop new wars and redirect our resources into health care, education, green jobs, and other life-affirming activities. Uh, Medea Benjamin is the author of eight books. Her latest book is Drone Warfare, Killing by Remote Control. She's been campaigning to stop the use of killer drones. It is certainly not in America's interest to keep that up. Her direct questioning of President Obama during his 2013 foreign policy address, as well as her recent trips to Pakistan and Yemen, helped shine a light on the innocent people killed by U.S. drone strikes. Well, again, thanks for being with us. Medea Benjamin, who has been an advocate for social justice for more than 30 years. Uh, And she's uh, just got a, a great resume. And in 2010, she received the Martin Luther King Jr. Peace Prize from the Fellowship of Reconciliation and the 2012 uh, Peace Prize by the U.S. Peace Memorial. She's a former economist, nutritionist with the United Nations and World Health Organization and a very famous person. It is indeed an honor to have Medea Benjamin back on KeepingDemocracyAlive.com. Thanks so much. Oh, sure. Well, a long intro. Yeah, well, you've got a long resume doing a lot of really uh, out there things, showing some tremendous courage, and that is very much appreciated, and it's making a difference. At that Republican candidate's debate this summer, did you get to see that uh, clown show? Uh, 
Yes, yes. Well, all of the candidates... fascinating. Yeah, fascinating, really. All of the candidates absolutely fell over each other in hating Iran more than the other. But in your article, you write, oddly, when those candidates complain about the evil forces of radical Islam or trouble in the Middle East, they never seem to mention Saudi Arabia. We in America have been comfortable for decade after decade with the Saudis as our great ally in the region. When the average American thinks of Saudi Arabia, what what do you think they picture, Medea? Well, I think they think of a kind of a, a positive image because it is a friend of the United States. They probably are under the mistaken notion that there's some kind of uh, elections for leaders uh, at the national level in Saudi Arabia. Uh, they probably think there's just some democratic institutions in place, uh, and uh, they probably think that people are very wealthy. Everybody who lives there is living well. Um, I would guess that's the general image. And w- what is the truth of that? There, I don't. I have no idea what the population is. It's certainly a very, very large geographic area. Uh, we all know the royal family is obviously quite well to do. What about the average person in in Saudi Arabia? Are they all Rich? Well, most Saudis uh, are are uh, living pretty well, um, except the problem is that the whole thing is built up on foreign labor, and those foreign laborers are not living very well. This is a general problem in, in countries in the Middle East that have a oil-based economy that so much of the actual day-to-day uh, work that involves physical kind of labor, whether it's construction work or uh, taking care of people's homes or uh, any kind of service work, it's mostly being done by uh, workers coming from other countries who have uh, very little rights. In fact, in uh, some cases, they lose their passport when they come in, their employer holds on to it, uh, and they work like indentured servants. Uh, so um, there are huge problems about labor in Saudi Arabia. Mm. And it's funny how that whole setup seems to carry on century after century. We have uh, a few with tremendous money and a lot of people who, you know, the, the system seems to depend on, as you say, kind of indentured servants. Sometimes they're called slaves. Other times, you know, just uh, people, you know, uh, uh, undocumented uh, workers, things like that. It, it does go around. So they, they are a reasonably democratic nation. Are they not? What, what is the situation with... Oh, there's, there's nothing democratic about Saudi Arabia. It is an absolute monarchy. It's run by the Saud family. Um, I think there's actually thousands of princes, but the ones who actually make the decisions are maybe a couple of hundred, and uh, they're not elected. And um, this is really uh, uh, a, a very um, uh, a government that runs by a small elite, very wealthy, uh, and uh, all male. Of course. And. Um, <laughs> has nothing, no semblance of democracy. It's funny because they're talking now about giving women 
uh, the right to vote and maybe even run for office, as if this is something you know, very, very uh, uh, exciting and modern. Um, but the problem is they don't have national elections. So <laughs> we're talking about something at a very local level. Uh, no doubt they can hire good public relations firms. <laughs> yeah, and they can't even have political parties. So you can't build up an opposition party to the um, to the, the, the Saudi monarchy. Um, you would land in um, prison right away for that. Oh. And unfortunately, you can land in prison for things that are a lot less severe, like even writing on a blog. Uh, that you think that maybe um, there are some modern societies that have separated religion and state, and perhaps that would be something that Saudis might want to look at. Mm. Um, That is considered treasonous. In fact, there's a blogger, Raif Badawi, who wrote just that kind of thing, and he was given a uh, 10-year prison sentence and a thousand lashes which oh they Yow. have gotten such um, oh. <laughs> backlash, should I say, <laughs> from the world saying this is medieval form of torture because they also would do it in a public place, like after Friday prayers, go out into a, the public square and start beating on a prisoner for writing a blog. Um, the rest of the world didn't see that too kindly, and so they've been embarrassed and have stopped the beatings, although they haven't reduced the sentence for the lashings or the 10 years in prison. And in fact, it's even worse than that. The lawyer for Rafe Badawi has been sentenced to 15 years for his role as a human rights attorney. Fascinating that we, we just don't hear about that. We get this nice picture of a wealthy country where everybody's happy, it seems to be doing very well. And you know, most people, I mean, quite frankly, when I think of a monarchy, well, there's there's England there. They have a, a, a you know monarchy, but it's a constitutional monarchy where people also have rights. They don't participate in the government very much over there. But is the government really is it one and the same with with the the uh, Saudi family? Is are they actually absolutely wow absolutely they don't have a constitution. No, it's it's absolute monarchy, and this very small group. Um, not only decides what's going to happen internally, but decides on their foreign policy and also decide uh, what kind of uh, restrictions they're going to put on women who have no say in uh, how the legislation that affects them is being not only uh, um, written, but how it is enforced. Mm. Fascinating. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest is Medea Benjamin, Code Pink, wonderful organization. And uh, we're talking about uh, who's the biggest troublemaker in the Middle East. And we're talking about Saudi Arabia. Just so interesting, the, the image that we've gotten as opposed to the reality that you're talking about. And we've all heard about the various different warring Islamic factions. There's the Sunnis and the Shia. Correct me if I'm wrong, Saudi Arabia is entirely Sunni, is it not? And where does that put them in the geopolitical uh, uh, region with regard to the struggle between Shia and Sunni? Well, they're not totally Sunni. There's about 10 to 15 percent Shia living in Saudi Arabia, and they are 
discriminated against on all levels in terms of uh, education, the kind of uh, positions they're allowed to hold, um, but the uh, the teaching of Wahhabism is done throughout the schools, and that's based on the uh, most conservative uh, view of of uh, Sunni uh, religious thought, and that same Sunni ideology is one that transfers to their foreign policy. I think um, I'm not sure if your your listeners know how involved. Saudi Arabia has been overseas because what we hear about is Iran is this uh, right. you know force of evil that's invading all these other countries. Um, Iran hasn't invaded any other country, but Saudi Arabia has, and uh, we at Code Pink have been to Bahrain, where during the Arab Spring, your listeners might remember Tunisia and Egypt, but they might not know that a small country like Bahrain had its own Arab Spring, where people were gathering in uh, Pearl Plaza trying to bring attention to the fact that they were living under a repressive monarchy and they wanted to open up their society. The Saudis didn't like that, Um, just the idea of having a country next door that had overthrown a monarchy was pretty terrifying to them. Uh And they sent in tanks, and I was going to say Saudi tanks, but really they're U.S. tanks, Mm. because most of... Saudi's weaponry is coming from the United States, mm. and crushed that uh, budding pro-democracy movement. Uh, my uh, partner and I and others were in Bahrain, staying at the home of one of the very brave human rights activists, uh, and um, he has been in and out of prison. He's been in prison just for tweeting, and uh, certainly also for leading democracy uh, um, totally nonviolent protests. Um, we got tear gassed in the streets every day that we were there, uh, and one by one our delegation was picked up by the police and, mm. um, and deported. So we got a little bit of a taste of that repressive society, but certainly for people living there, um, the Shia, it's majority Shia population, um, but it's run by a Sunni elite that the Saudis have been propping up. So that's one example. And uh, a more recent example is the uh, the situation in Yemen, right. where the Saudis are bombing on a regular basis, killing thousands of innocent people, and doing it uh, not just with the um, a blind eye, but actually with the complicity of the United States. And this is um, a, a horrible thing that's happening because not only are so many people being killed and injured, but it's creating a humanitarian crisis in Yemen that is um, extremely dire, and it's uh, food and water and medicines because of the uh, Saudi bombing and the Saudi interference in internal affairs in Yemen. Yeah, we did a show about uh, Yemen uh, a few weeks ago, and it's uh, Saudi Arabia is very much involved in that. I have gotten a sense over the years, just a little bit in, in dribs and drabs, about uh, uh, the, the Saudi government being very, really very scared, the royal family being very scared of any kind of democratic 
uh, sentiment coming to the people of Saudi Arabia. There's not very many in the royal family, but there's a lot of Saudis. And I, I, I wonder if you have any sense of how frightened the royal government may be. And fear, of course, makes people, especially people with weapons, do some crazy things. Well, yes. I mean, they want to maintain this iron uh, fist, not only internally, but abroad. Um, they were big backers and continue to be of the coup in Egypt that was so horrific, overthrew a democratically elected government there, um, a, a coup that has uh, jailed about 40,000 political dissidents, is handing out death sentences by the hundreds, including death sentence against the uh, elected leader, um, Mohamed Morsi. Um, the Saudis are extremely afraid of the Muslim Brotherhood because uh, they think that the uh, influence of the Muslim Brotherhood internally in Saudi Arabia could be uh, a real um, challenge to the Saudi monarchy. So there are numerous examples of Saudis pouring money and weapons into uh, destroying movements for democracy, uh, whether it's the example that we were talking about in Bahrain, uh, supporting coups in Egypt. Uh, and um, I think we should also understand the extent that the Saudi ideology that is being taught in madrasas in, in religious schools throughout the region uh, is affecting the uh, the entire um, Middle East and North Africa and mm. parts of Asia mm. and is becoming the uh, ideology that recruits young men to join groups like ISIS. Um, how does one get to that point of thinking that they want to live in an Islamic caliphate? Uh, a lot of it is coming from the kind of religious extremism that is emanating from Saudi Arabia. That is very shocking. Uh, that so you're suggesting? Let me make sure I got this right here. That they have they fund these madrasas, these schools, not just in Saudi Arabia but elsewhere that encourage what you and I might consider religious extremism, which so that helps um, create new people in Daesh or ISIS? Is that is that accurate? Well, I'm saying that, yes, that, that creating the kind of ideological, conservative uh, uh, interpretation of Sharia law, um, the position of women as reflected in sure. Saudi Arabia itself. Um, this is is reflected in what you see uh, in ISIS. And let's also talk about beheadings. While yes, I was going to ask similarities, about that. Yes, too. Which is that, you know, Saudi Arabia is really the uh, the kingdom of beheadings. They actually have something called Chop Chop Square. Ah. They've beheaded over 100 people just so far in this year alone. Uh, and this idea of public beheadings that is so abhorrent to us, and, and rightly so, um, people think of when they think of ISIS. Uh, they don't think of it when they think of a government like Saudi Arabia. And you could get your head chopped off for all kinds of offenses that are not even considered serious offenses in other countries um, for 
drug offenses for apostasy, which is uh, against their um, like her- her- heretical views on religion, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, for adultery. Um, so you know, this is an extremist kind of um, punishment that is meted out uh, not by non-state actors like ISIS, but by a government that is a great ally. In fact, next to Israel, it would be the closest ally of the United States in the Middle East. That is just, I mean, people got to think about that, that here we've all been horrified by the beheadings uh, committed by ISIS and think of them as just way, way outside the norm. And yet, and they're the enemy. I mean, it's like they're the new enemy. We've got to have an enemy. It's so good for, you know, military profits, let's face it. And they're not good guys, for sure. I mean, they're really... Uh, but the fact that here is all this coverage of the ISIS beheadings, and yet how many Americans, how much American mainstream media has even, you know, brought up the subject of beheadings by Saudi Arabia, our great ally in Saudi Arabia. How, how is, is that just incredibly great manipulation of the media? And by whom? By Saudi Arabia? By the United States? Or is the media just themselves, you know, deciding to lay off Saudi Arabia? How, what, what's your take on that, uh, Medea? Well, it's a good question. I don't know. Uh, uh, I, 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 it would be very difficult, I suppose, to get footage from Saudi Arabia uh, about things like beheadings, but it doesn't seem impossible at all. Right. Uh, in fact, there's lots of people with smartphones there. Mm. Um, it's uh, And you wouldn't even have to get that. I mean, just to get some more reporting, like the piece I did, that talks about the Saudi repression internally of the Shia community, of the women, of the foreign workers, of uh, Saudi's repressive policies uh, to people who are challenging the the monarchy or uh, any of this stuff. I mean, we just don't get the coverage. And you ask why? Um, I don't know. I think that uh, uh, that our media has become so tame and uh, so complacent and so much following in the uh, whatever the Pentagon says, right. kind of regurgitated. Yes. And there's a lot of money that's being made in Saudi Arabia, whether it's through the sale of oil uh, from Saudi Arabia, the purchase of oil, or the sale of U.S. weapons. Um, we haven't brought that subject. No, but we need boy, to. you know, talk about weapons sales and money to be made in selling weapons. It's just pretty um, remarkable that here is this repressive country and we are selling the largest weapons sale in the history of the world between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, over $60 billion. Six. So there's a lot of money to be made, and I guess that's one of the reasons we don't hear all the negative side about this monarchy. Well, you may not be old enough, but I'm old enough to remember when there was such a thing as investigative journalism. Really, I'm not making it up. That actually <laughs> did used to exist. Now, instead of reporters, for the most part, we have stenographers. You know, they just, whatever the official word is, they used to call it propaganda. It seems, you know, maybe they're just lazy. I don't know, but that's what they go with as the truth. It uh, it just amazes me. How are they 
regarded in the region. I mean, it's a very big region. We talked about their interference in, in Bahrain. They must be good buddies with uh, the uh, uh, Qatar uh, government, you know, the, the royal governments there. But there are a lot of governments in, in the region. Uh, how does Saudi uh, Arabia figure there? Are they a powerhouse in the region? Are they, are they sort of a, uh, you know, look down on? Or, or, or what do you think uh, the Arab world looks at them as? Uh, well, I think that um, there's a constantly changing relationship in the Middle East, and of course, one of the things that uh, the Saudis have been able to do is just throw a lot of money around, and that can buy a lot of goodwill. Um, there have been disputes between Saudi Arabia and the other uh, oil-producing countries, but Saudi is the is they're the big the big guns on the block, and um, you know, they have been able to uh, buy their way into dealing with uh, issues all over the Middle East in a, a way that uh, keeps the democratic forces from penetrating inside Saudi Arabia. And that's their uh, main concern. And the U.S. just uh, loves them. How, is, I, I wonder about this, this uh, incredible, you know, super close partnership between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. It seems like it's gone on uh, without interruption. doesn't matter, Democrat, Republican. Uh, they're, they're just buddy-buddy. Is that, I'm guessing, well, there's oil from Saudi Arabia and there's weapons from us. Is, is that what it's all about? Or are they, some, are, are they seen legitimately as some sort of stabilizing influence in the region? Uh, how, why is it that we're so close? <laughs> Well, I think because of the, uh, certainly the issue of, of the oil market, the Saudis taking the U.S. Uh, side in um, different disputes in the Middle East, uh, the, um, the fact that there is so much money to be made in the uh, economic relationships with Saudi Arabia. And, um, you know, the Saudis are smart. Like, look at how they're reacting now to the nuclear deal with Iran. They have been traditional enemies of Iran. It goes back to the Sunni-Shia split. And yet, unlike Israel, that has been taking an incredibly aggressive role to try to uh, squash the Iran nuclear deal and butting heads directly with President Obama and uh, other members of the Democratic Party on this, mm -hmm. um, the Saudis are, are much smarter about it. They're playing a backhanded role. They're not coming out publicly against the deal. Uh, they are, uh, seems to be that they are channeling money into groups that are fighting this deal, uh, but they're not doing it publicly. So I think this is one of the ways that the Saudis have functioned by using their money and certainly uh, it's quite remarkable when you look at where Saudi money is going, even here in the United States. So many Ivy League universities get Saudi money, think tanks get Saudi money. Um, certainly the Clintons uh, in their foundation have taken lots of Saudi money. Mm. Uh, even Jimmy Carter, sweet Jimmy Carter that has <laughs> the lovely Carter Center, that one of their main focuses is empowerment of women and girls. Um, they take uh, Saudi money, and uh, so that that kind of uh, it's almost like hush money. 
you know, we'll give this to you and just don't speak out uh, against us. And you see that in so many different layers uh, from the top levels of dealing between uh, the, the governments to the way their money has filtered down into so many different areas of our society. Plus, they pay a lot of money to PR firms that try to shore up their image, and they've done a very brilliant job of that. Yeah, their image is, it sounds like it's a lot better than it should be. I guess that's why people hire PR firms. You don't hire a PR firm unless you got something to uh, make yourself look a little bit better about than is the reality. <laughs> There's a lot of things to cover up about Saudi Arabia, and um, money will do that. And as we're, we've been talking about the media not bringing up these things, I mean, I wonder just... You know, it would be curious to see how many Americans even know that 15 of the 19 hijackers from 9-11 were from Saudi Arabia, or the uh, the fact that there are still parts of the 9-11 Commission's report um, that deal with Saudi Arabia that um, we are not allowed to see as the public. So lots of cover-up, lots yeah, of let's, um, let's... relationships that it would be very nice for us to know more about. It's fascinating to me. And again, if you just tuned in, Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here, I guess, is Medea Benjamin, Code Pink. We're talking about uh, Saudi Arabia, what's reality about Saudi Arabia. And that thing about 9-11, you know, somehow we made war immediately on Afghanistan. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't uh, the bin Laden family, Osama bin Laden, weren't they a rich Saudi family. What what is known about nine eleven and and people from Saudi Arabia, if not the actual Saudi Arabian royal family? What what do we know about that? You're right. I I know very little, but there's some sort of mysterious hidden uh, uh, connection between Saudi Arabia and the nine eleven attacks. Well, let's you know start with the fact that the. Uh the 15 of the 19 hijackers are from Saudi Arabia, and then um, move on from there. And there is so much we don't know. Uh, this classified 28 pages of the 9-11 uh, congressional inquiry is something that um, we would really like to see. Uh, when that report was released um, in December of 2002, um, we were... Uh, left to speculate about what is in that 28 pages that had been redacted by the Bush White House. And um, I think there's uh, a lot that we, obviously, a lot that we don't right. know and what, that we would like to know. What what could, I mean, this is veering into speculation here, but oh, why not? Uh, who, I wonder what interests in Saudi Arabia may have wanted to commit a crime like that. I, I, I'm trying to figure out what the heck the motivation may have been, aside from, oh, you know, we hate the U.S., they're, you know, imperialists, they support Israel, on and on. Is there any kind of special uh, uh, motivation that might uh, tie in the Saudi uh, royal family, or is it just completely buried and we simply don't know? Well, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't go on to speculate uh, about their actual involvement. It's more the question to me about what was the relationship between the Bush administration and the Saudis. 
Uh, and what is it that they have refused to tell us about that yeah. relationship that would uh, shed some light on what happened on 9-11? Yeah, it certainly would be good to know. Hmm, a lot of questions, more questions than answers. And Code Pink, of course, is r- rather focused on, on women's rights. Uh, conventional wisdom is that women in the entire Arab region, in general, are oppressed. That's just the way it is. How does Saudi Arabia compare with the other Islamic na- uh, nations in this regard, with regard to treatment of women? Is it better, worse, the same? Saudi Arabia would be the worst. Um, it's funny because, you know, you talk about what are people's images. Right. I would think that people thought under Saddam Hussein that women in Iraq were extremely oppressed. And it was pretty amazing to me the first time I went to Iraq under Saddam Hussein to see women totally uncovered or covered if they want, but it was really? a personal issue, huh. uh, to see that women were... Uh, involved in all aspects of society. In fact, they uh, were complaining that there were too many women in university and they had quotas for the men. Um, and that's, that's something else, actually, in, in Iran. Um, but in Iraq under Saddam, women were in all aspects of society. The, some of the first women I met were doctors and lawyers and uh, architects and extremely well-educated women. Um, the same is true of Iran. Iran, because it's a religious government, unlike uh, Iraq, they do have to put a head covering on, but just a scarf, not uh, like Saudi Arabia, that is much more extreme. And um, in Iran, uh, women are uh, don't have the same kind of restrictions about uh, needing male guardians, um, uh, Iran women are involved much more in, in uh, the government itself, elected to the uh, legislature. There's actually um, national elections in Iran. So um, women are, are uh, I mean, the only positive thing to say about Saudi Arabia is uh, people who are connected in some way to the elite in Saudi Arabia, they have a lot of money, so it's not... You know, a women women can't drive, but they have drivers. Uh, <laughs> so they get around some of the restrictions through the wealth. But uh, still, women are much more repressed in Saudi Arabia uh, than in neighboring countries. Wow, that's so different from the impression we get. Just just fascinating. They're like, so they can't drive. Uh, I guess they can't vote. What about uh, job openings? Can they... Uh, can they participate yes. in the economy in, in Saudi yes. Arabia? and there are many women at universities, and there are many well-educated Saudi women. But when it comes to things like equality for the courts, access to children in the case of divorce, those kinds of things, um, they are uh, extremely um, discriminated against um, vis-a-vis the rights that the men have. Hmm. Uh, and... It's um, it's just a very, very closed society. And even though there have been some reforms made in recent years, and as I mentioned, they're now saying that women could vote in municipal less, uh, elections, and, um, you know, that is, a, that is positive. But, you know, we're talking about 2015 right now. Uh, <laughs> this is a, a, a 21st century. We shouldn't even have to be talking about 
these issues in uh, a place that is such a um, world player like yeah. Saudi Arabia. Yeah, that's it's interesting when you you, know, you think about about the the bad guys, the terrorist states, and all that. They're sort of uh, you know non grata. You know, they're not appreciated by most of the world. They're sort of on the outs. But here's Saudi Arabia, and they're as you say a big player. I'm sure because of the oil money, and as Bob Dylan famously said, "Money doesn't talk; it swears." And so they have a a great deal of money there, uh, and and they they use it. What about the relationship between uh, the Saudi royals and? The state of Israel, you know, for most of the uh, region, uh, the state of Israel is kind of a, a pariah. Uh, but what what about the Saudi relationship with the state of Israel? And I'm sure somehow the U.S. is quite involved with that whole uh, scenario. Yeah, well, they have traditionally they they don't have diplomatic relations. They've never had diplomatic relations, um, but they have many things in common. They are both very close allies of the United States. Um, they have both worked with the United States uh, to uh, on issues in the region. Um, they have uh, uh, speculation is that they are working together to try to nix this uh, Iran deal right now, but they are both um, consider Iran their enemies, and so... In a way, it's the enemy of my enemy is is, is my friend, right. and uh, so even though they wouldn't publicly say it, I think behind the scenes there's a lot of collaboration between the Saudis and the Israeli government. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. It seems to make sense from the picture that uh, that you're painting, and um, you know we know that uh, as you mentioned that the royal family maintains its a lot of its power by sharing the wealth from oil. How, how effective is this at ensuring domestic tranquility? Is, you know, passing, I mean, I understand in Alaska, for example, there's some oil money there and it keeps, keeps taxes low. It keeps people pretty happy. I, I wonder if it's something like that in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. You mentioned that the uh, workers are imported from other countries and they don't live quite so uh high off the hog, which, of course, is uh, not kosher in Saudi Arabia. But uh, d- d- does it work? Is it working? Is it? Do you think, going out to the future, that sharing the wealth from oil will be an effective uh, means of keeping domestic tranquility and maintaining the power of the royal family? Yes, I think that they've done that in a brilliant way uh, when the Arab Spring started breaking out throughout the Middle East, um, the response of the Saudi uh, family was to uh, give two-month bonuses to uh, Saudi workers uh, to spread some of that oil wealth around, um, and it certainly did the job in terms of oh, that, it, it, along with repression, we must yes. say, <laughs> the two of them together. But there's a factor that we haven't talked about, which is the price of oil has gone yes. way down, yes. and uh, the Saudis keep pumping out the oil, and they are um, getting, uh, they don't have the kind of money that they had before to throw around, Yeah. Um, which means it's going to be harder for them to uh, keep people happy by 
uh, paying out um, yeah. uh, bonuses or other things like that. So it, this will definitely affect their ability to keep people happy internally. And, and, and I, I quote from an article in the Wall Street Journal, I don't quote them all that often, uh, the Arab world's largest economy, Saudi Arabia, is expected to post a budget deficit of almost 20% of domestic gross product this year, according to the International Monetary Fund, with income from oil accounting for about 90% of revenue, a more than 50% drop in prices in the past 12 months has put pressure on the nation's finances. What do you hear about how this might affect the nation? Should we expect the royal family to just to just eat it? You know, I mean, like uh, you know, Germany, for example. Uh, uh, you know, in terms of uh, credit to other developing nations, uh, they don't eat it themselves. The, the, the wealthy people uh, at the International Monetary Fund or whatever they they demand austerity that the people who borrowed the money. Hey, tough breaks, guys. You gotta, you gotta, you know, pay higher taxes and lose some of your benefits. And I'm wondering what the royal family might be expected to do. It seems like it'd be smart for them to just say, "Okay, we don't have as much profit this year. The oil prices dropped fifty percent, but we're still gonna keep our people happy, so we'll have a little bit less income." What's your sense of of how that might actually work out? I really I don't know. I think um, the Saudis have calculated that um, the, the, they would knock some of their competitors out of business with the low prices, and then the prices would go up again. Uh, and that hasn't happened. And in fact, the speculation is they're going to keep going down. Yes. And this paints a very dark picture for Saudi Arabia. Uh, and um, so... so well, I was just wondering, maybe, maybe uh, as you describe it here, if the price keeps going down, as it's expected to do, I mean, let's face it, people are using less oil, which is a very good thing, uh, maybe the people might feel a little bit more empowered since they're less dependent on the, you know, nice uh, gestures uh, of, of the uh, royal family. I wonder if that may actually aid any kind of democratic movement in the country? Of course, this is speculation. Well, it could. It could, because, you know, people's lives might be really affected by this. You know, Saudi Arabia is one of the hottest places in the world. I think it's like 60% of their electricity generated is is consumed just by air conditioning. Um, There's an extremely inefficient use of energy inside Saudi Arabia. Um, They might be experiencing their own problems that are going to... Uh, cause people to question how the government is is functioning economically and wanting more say in how uh, Saudi money is being used. So uh, they also might see more and more the tremendous uh, difference among those who have so much money Mm -hmm. and the way they use that money. I was in a a layover in... um, uh, It was uh, in Abu Dhabi once, and went into one of these very fancy, like, six-star hotels, and um, there were a bunch of Saudi princes there, and um, very fancy cars that they were bidding on, and the bidding was going, like, $3 million, $4 million, $5 million for a car. And I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, this is, this is crazy. How could this car be worth so much? And I asked one of them, and he said, we're not even bidding on the car, we're bidding on the license plate. <laughs> 
Um, the license plate? They wanted the lowest number of the license plate, the prestige thing. Oh, my God. So somebody who bought license plate that said number 11 on it was paying millions of dollars just for that license plate. And you think, these people have way too much money. <laughs> um, these are like 20-year-olds spending millions of dollars on a license plate. Wow. So, you know, that. how long can that last? Really? Uh, well, Let- I think it's going to keep on lasting like that. Yeah, you talk about unsustainable. That that's just well, that's quite a story there. I can't even uh, picture it really. And uh, you know the the, the military. Y- you write that since 1979, of course, the year of the uh, overthrow of uh, the U.S. buddy, the Shah of Iran, Washington has pursued a policy of building up the Saudi military as a counterweight to Iran's revolutionary government that has certainly come into play in Yemen. Uh, the Saudi government is very much involved in, in pushing down uh, a popular movement uh, in Yemen, as, as I understand it. Tell us about this uh, policy consistent since 1979 of our tax dollars, my tax dollars, your tax dollars being used to build up the Saudi military uh, as a counterweight to Iran's revolutionary government. And, you know, m- my impression, again, sorry to keep talking here, but is that Yemen is, uh, you know, just a place where they're playing the game. It's like Vietnam was pictured as a, a fight between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Of course, it was nonsense. But Yemen seems to be uh, pictured as a place, a battleground between the Saudi military and Iran's revolutionary government. Tell us about uh, that state of affairs, please. Well, just to, to, for your listeners to understand that you know, to wage war in Yemen, for example, the Saudis are using F-15 fighter jets that they bought from Boeing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're uh, using um, Lockheed Martin's F-16s to bomb not only Yemen, but uh, Syria. Uh, the, um, the U.S. Uh, companies are really dependent on Saudi Arabia mm. to keep their, um, uh, their gravy train going. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this really is part of fueling wars in the Middle East. And it's not only Saudi Arabia, it's uh, Qatar, you know, another right. Gulf country with tremendous uh, money. They signed an $11 billion deal with the Pentagon to get Apache uh, helicopters. Uh, and um, we have the uh, uh, the Emirates. Um, oh, yeah. The United- so uh, the, the sales to these repressive governments in... Um, the Gulf are really fueling the um, military-industrial complex here in the United States. And I would say it's fueling the uh, Sunni-Shia wars that are being played out by proxy uh, in different places throughout the Middle East. So um, Mm -hmm. uh, it is quite a, a key issue when you think about how can there be a political solution to the Middle East, um, uh, the, the violence from Syria to Yemen to Libya? And um, obviously there has to be one, but uh, the ca- on the counterweight side is all of the money that's being made by fueling these wars. And the U.S. and the Soviets and, and the Israelis are part of the 
the problem. And thus the title of your article, Medea Benjamin, Who is the Real Troublemaker in the Middle East? And it sure sounds like Saudi Arabia is uh, right there making an awful lot of trouble, but at least... Uh, you know, it's helping to create jobs in the United States. I mean, Lord knows we can't have public works jobs building things we need, like roads and bridges and schools and electric infrastructure. We've got to have public works jobs building weapon systems to sell to places like Saudi Arabia. Isn't that special? Well, you know, we, we uh, two things I wanted to mention there. One is I did get some criticism from the article um, and uh, for not mentioning Israel as one of the troublemakers oh, in the true. Middle East and That's just focusing on Saudi Arabia. So I do think it is important to uh, mention that when we look at who is uh, fomenting conflict in the Middle East, that we don't leave out Israel, which has bombed so many of its neighbors and, and uh, um, internally in, in the Gaza Strip, uh -huh. um, three terrible attacks in the last five years. But then you, you also brought up the issue about how do we, I mean, in a facetious way, but the flip side of it is how do we get off this treadmill? How do we yes. um, clip the wings of the military-industrial complex? And I would say one positive thing right now is happening with um, the fight around the nuclear deal. Yes. Because the uh, Israeli government and the forces that, that benefit from ongoing violence um, they don't want to see this deal happen. And that's why we're going to have the terrible spectacle of the majority of our Congress voting against it, uh, even though the, the majority of people in the world are really excited about this. Um, but the, the deal, it looks like, will go through because Congress won't have enough votes to override the veto. And that will have a, a tremendously positive impact in many different uh, spheres. It will loosen the grip of APAC. Uh, it will uh, hopefully uh, lead to uh, the U.S. talking to Iran on other issues related to the Middle East. And let's face it, we're not going to have uh, uh, any solutions to what's going on in Syria or what's going on in, in Yemen, for example, without having Iran at the table as well. Yes. And the Saudis are definitely afraid of that. Um, the Israelis are as well, but I think it's uh, quite inevitable. Iran is such a big, powerful country and uh, with 80 million people. I think next to Egypt, it's the largest population in the Middle East. And so moving us, weaning us away from this um, very destructive relationship with Saudi Arabia and Israel uh, could open things up for more political solutions to Middle Eastern problems. Well, it's always nice to hear something positive, some positive trend. And, you know, the, the Obama-Kerry deal with Iran, as you as we mentioned earlier, the Saudi government claims to support it. I I, I sort of doubt that. They, they appear to be the number one sworn enemy of Iran. Uh, what What is the reality there? Do we know? Are they actually supporting this deal because it will you know, keep Iran from getting nuclear weapons? or And they have a lot of lobbyists in Washington. What what do we know about the reality of the, of the Saudi position? Or maybe there's more than one Saudi position on this. Well, I think the Saudis are obviously against this deal. But as we mentioned earlier, they're, they're 
playing their cards in a smarter way than Israel. Israel is yeah, really going to be hurt by this deal, except that Obama is promising all kinds of money and new weapons to them. Uh, but it will damage relationships, and the Saudis don't want to see that relationship damaged. Uh, so um, they uh, are doing what they can behind the scenes, but uh, I think when Kerry went there, there was probably some deal struck, like, we'll help you, we'll continue to help you in your uh, murderous uh, uh, war in Yemen, um, and you keep quiet about this deal, or some other kinds uh-huh. of political uh, maneuvering that has gone on behind the scenes, because it is strange, and, and I would say uh, positive in the larger yes. perspective, that the Saudis have been quiet about this. No, that that certainly is odd. Well, you know, there's the old expression, I don't have a dog in this fight. You know, I don't really care. Uh, um, why should listeners care what happens in this far-off Saudi Arabia? What is, What is America's dog in this fight? What is the American citizen's interest in this, do you think, Medea Benjamin? Oh, gosh, on so many different levels. I mean, just the fact that the Saudis are pumping out cheap oil uh, is part of a, what is keeping us from moving into the uh, green energy era when trying to have mm-hmm. wind and and sun be, compat- uh, be be competitive economically with oil, uh, and the Saudis won't stop pumping out this cheap oil. Um, the other is how do we move from the military uh, economy that we have to a peace economy, and a peace economy we would in- include a green, sustainable one, as well as one that's not focused on uh, weaponry as a basis for our manufacturing sector. Uh, so um, there are so many different reasons why the, the Saudi relationship with the U.S. is so destructive and actually affecting us uh, and stopping us from moving towards the kind of positive, um, uh, uh, both economic system mm-hmm. as well as a uh, foreign policy that would be based on nonviolent resolutions to conflicts, on diplomacy. Uh, so those are just a couple of the reasons. But this really does affect our daily lives, whether we see it or not. Hmm, interesting. And I'm sure American relations with the other nations in the area, my sense is Saudi Arabia is, is you know, less than highly popular. They're not, you know, the kid that everybody wants to dance with in the Middle East. Uh, and that I would think, you know, the U.S. needs to have better relations with that uh, the region. It's a very uh, volatile region, and, uh, you know, we have to have a more balanced policy with regard to the state of Israel. We've been just, like, you know, totally supporting everything and anything Israel does, and it seems like we've largely done that with the Saudis as well. What would you well, say? And look at what the U.S. did in, in Iraq of uh, getting rid of a, a, a government and then uh, putting a government in place that is closest to Iran. And imagine how the Saudis feel about that. Uh. So it's a complicated region, and I think our lessons after 14 years should be uh, that we should not be going out making enemies overseas, but protecting ourselves at home and making ourselves more liked by doing positive things out in the world instead of sending in the uh, F-16s and the, the drones and yeah. the other horrendous <laughs> technology we have. 
Absolutely. And, and you've certainly you've written about the, the drones and how counterproductive they are. It's just amazing to me that that can be something that the U.S. is doing and that people don't really know about. Well, you've done some great work over the years. I'm sure going to do a lot more. What, what websites uh, would you point people to to uh, keep in touch with some of your work, Code Pink, uh, other suggestions you may have? Well, Code Pink, you can go to codepink.org and sign up. We only send out alerts once a week, but they're uh, important, and we'd love to be in touch with your listeners. Um, right now we're focusing on the Iran deal, but we focus on lots of issues, not only related to the Middle East, but also um, bring it back home to how do we uh, deal with the militarization of our own communities yeah, really. and, and try to move to this peace economy. Uh, and... Um, so that's the best way to get in touch with us. And um, we have also trips that people might be interested in. We're taking a trip to uh, Palestine for the olive harvest in early November. We have trips now that are going to Cuba. We have one going to the city of Guantanamo that will wow. uh, focus on with the Cubans on uh, how do we stop U.S. foreign military bases. Um, as well as have a good time in Cuba. Um, we have a trip that's going to be going in the spring to uh, one of the remaining long-time conflicts that hasn't been settled, uh, in, uh, and that is in Western Sahara. So um, a lot of interesting ways to travel the world with Code Pink. Just go onto the website, codepink.org. Thank you so much. It's it's really been an honor to have you. Medea Benjamin of Code Pink. We've been talking about the secret life of Arabia. Thank you again so much for being with us. Okay, thanks so much for having me on. Bye-bye.